Hello and welcome to UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva, a weekly 15-minute wrap of news and interviews from the United Nations. I'm Daniel Johnson and in this week's show we're covering Belarus, Eritrea and the United States at the Human Rights Council during the first week of its month-long session in Geneva. And after gunmen abducted around 40 students and teachers from a boarding school in rural Nigeria, an interview with UN Children's Fund country representative Peter Hawkins. Such attacks are a way of life, he tells us. And not forgetting closing comments from regular guests, Solange Bertege Cortez and Alpha Diallo. But first, the news, which this week comes from the 46th session of the Human Rights Council in Geneva. A systematic crackdown against dissent in Belarus is continuing months since the country's disputed presidential election last year, UN Rights Chief Michelle Bachelet has told the Human Rights Council. In comments to member states on Thursday, the High Commissioner for Human Rights insisted that curbs on demonstrators had got worse since last August's poll returned President Alexander Lukashenko to office, claims that Belarus has rejected. Those protests led to mass arbitrary arrests and detentions of largely peaceful demonstrators along with hundreds of allegations of torture and ill-treatment, Ms. Bachelet explained, before noting that not one of the hundreds of complaints for acts of torture and ill-treatment had been investigated. The High Commissioner highlighted concerns about government proposals which would reportedly enable harsher punishments for those taking part in peaceful demonstrations from now on. To date, nearly 250 people have received prison sentences on allegedly politically motivated charges linked to the 2020 presidential election, Ms. Bachelet said. A call now for an investigation into possible attacks on displacement camps housing Eritrean refugees and asylum seekers in Ethiopia's war-torn Tigray region. Mohamed Babakar, special rapporteur on Eritrea, made the appeal to the Human Rights Council on Wednesday. He said that there were over 96,000 Eritrean refugees in Tigray before conflict began last November and that he had received first-hand accounts of allegations of grave human rights and humanitarian law violations. These included extrajudicial killings, targeted abductions and forced repatriation and jailing of camp residents, allegedly by Eritrean forces. Turning to the situation inside Eritrea, the special rapporteur maintained that he'd seen no concrete evidence of progress or actual improvement in the human rights situation in the country, which he said lacked rule of law, a constitution and an independent judiciary. Although the release of Christians and Jehovah's Witnesses in the country was a welcome development, Babaka said that there had been no progress on political prisoners and prisoners of conscience. Responding to those claims, the Eritrean delegation said that the allegations were presumptive, offensive and biased. Finally, plans for a major comeback at the Council for the United States, which said on Wednesday that it intends to re-engage with the body. The development follows the US decision to pull out of the Council in 2018. In a video address, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said that the United States would be placing democracy and human rights at the centre of foreign policy as these were essential for peace and stability. Mr Blinken also reiterated previous calls for reform of the UN Forum, in particular what he called its disproportionate focus on Israel. The United States representative also stressed the country's commitment to addressing systemic racism and to putting this at the top of the global human rights agenda. The news there from the Human Rights Council, you can follow it live at webtv.un.org. This is UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva. Thanks for listening. Now imagine a place where attacks on schools are just a way of life to many, to the bandits and terrorists who carry them out, and to the communities who are just far enough away from state protection to make them a target. For this week's interview, I asked UN Children's Fund Nigeria representative Peter Hawkins to explain which areas are most at risk. 
Attacks on schools and insecurity in many parts of Nigeria is not an uncommon feature. And over the past 10 years, especially in the Northeast, where attacks on schools has been a, a way of life. More recently in Katsina, which is in the Northwest, and Niger, which is in the North Central, has experienced attacks on two boarding schools where children have been abducted and taken away. The reasons for these attacks on schools are multiple ideological in the northeast, where Boko Haram is against education, to the extreme where in Katsina and Niger State last week and a couple of months ago is around extortion, is trying to kidnap the children, trying to secure a ransom and extort money from the authorities. Could you give me an update on that attack then, just last Wednesday on this boarding school? College students abducted apparently. Do we have any update on where they are? The attack took place last Wednesday, uh, probably between three o'clock and six o'clock in the morning. One unfortunately was shot dead. Others, including some of the teachers, were taken as hostages. What we know as of this morning is that the discussions or negotiations, if you want for a better term, are taking place. And we're optimistic that a solution should be found over the next couple of days. But the implications for those children are devastating. The psychosocial impact, the interruption in their education, but the long-term feeling that my school is not the safe place I thought it was, has a profound effect, uh, impact on children whether in Niger State, as was the case last week, or Katsina, as the case was a couple of months ago, or anywhere else where these boarding schools, other schools, are situated in slightly remote areas. So what are your immediate aims now once these children hopefully are returned? Education is the most important thing for the future of Nigeria, the education of their children, not only in itself, but to ensure that the children can aspire. The biggest problem at the moment in Nigeria is that there are over 12 million children out of school, have no experience of a learning education. Secondly is the insecurity, and this is in the northeast, in the, where the insurgency is undermining educational learning for all children, although there is some very good news. I mean, if you went to Maiduguri, which is the capital of Borno State in the northeast, in 2015-2016, there was nothing happened, no schools. You go there now and eight o'clock in the morning, 12 o'clock in the morning and in the afternoon at 3.30 and 5.30, there are traffic jams of KK, KKs are the three-wheelers around the city, transporting children from school to home or home to school. And it's girls and boys. It's a, a miraculous change that has taken place. Thousands of children, tens of thousands of children going to school when they were not doing that five years ago. However, in That's the- wonderful. I've never been so happy to hear about traffic jams. But sorry, I did interrupt though. Carry on. And, and particularly happy to hear about girls going to school too. Absolutely. But in the rural areas or in the small towns, education is non-existent. And in areas occupied by the insurgency, it's impossible. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, uh, banned. So our objective is one, to secure schools or to secure a learning experience for children, whether that is in school, in a formal setting, informal setting, or even indeed at home, where we can use data and digital learning to take place. And then there is ensuring that children have access to schools.
Now, the insecurity that we saw in Katsina, in Niger state of late, and is a perpetual one in the northeast of Nigeria, has to be addressed. And there are different ways we need to look at it. The Safe School Initiative, which started off in 2014, following the Chibok girls' attack, where 300, 400 girls were taken away, um, is still as relevant today as it was then. It hasn't materialized as well. It's evolved in the Northeast, but now we need to replicate elements of it in the Northwest of Nigeria to safeguard against school being attacked by whatever group, whatever entity. Very difficult situation for you to be in, very dangerous for humanitarians to get into the Northeast where there are who knows how many people still in need of support who you can't reach. How do you go about producing change and getting into those inaccessible areas? As humanitarians, you want to stay neutral. It would be very easy to go in with an armed truck, wouldn't it? But that's not what you want to do. The insecurity in the Northeast is a major obstacle for us to deliver humanitarian assistance. And in actual fact, this very weekend on Friday night, a town called Dikwa was attacked and overrun by the insurgency. And thankfully, as the last reports that I had, all our staff are well. But that interruption of humanitarian assistance is fairly profound because we now have to take our people out. Uh, give them psychosocial care and counselling. And then when it becomes safer, which might not take another two, three, four weeks before they can go back and before we can resume activities. It's interruptions of this nature that make it very difficult. There's also the areas where which are totally inaccessible, i.e. areas that the insurgency control. We cannot go into there because of our own security and where there are possibly in the region of 1.2 million people who we cannot access at this point in time. Peter Hawkins from UNICEF there speaking from Abuja. You can hear the longer version of that interview on UN News forward slash audio hub now. You're listening to UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva with me, Daniel Johnson. This is the part where we wrap things up, but not before we've heard from guests Solange Beatega-Cortez and Alpha Diallo from UN Geneva's Information Service. Alpha, if I could start with you, we've often reported on Nigeria's northeast, the displacement caused by violence there, but I wasn't really up to speed on the fact that the school attacks that are happening elsewhere are really down to banditry, not extremist ideology. That's right, Dan. It's a worrying trend. And the latest attack comes two months after more than 300 students were abducted from a school in Kankara, Katsina State, further to the north. And the students have since been released, thankfully. These incidents are a grim reminder of the Chiba kidnapping. Nearly seven years ago, Boko Haram took 276 girls from their school in Chibok in northeast Nigeria. Many of them remain missing done. Despite the dangers, and indeed because of them, humanitarians believe that education must remain on top of the public agenda and also that governments should translate their vision for education into real change for children, especially the most vulnerable who greatly need access to lessons. And they need teachers too, of course. It seems difficult to imagine a place where people don't understand that learning is the key to a better future. Alpha, what can you tell us about this terror group, Boko Haram? Dan, the militant group's attacks on schools, students and teachers in northeast Nigeria have had a devastating impact on education. From 2009 until December 2018, more than 600 teachers were killed and 900 schools damaged or destroyed. 
according to UNICEF, more than 1,500 schools were forced to close and over 4 million children in the Northeast are at risk of missing out on education. The attacks on schools, communities, and education itself are tragic consequences of protracted conflict that has left a generation of children traumatized. And Solange, in addition to working at the UN, I should say that you're a published writer and you've written about the topic of abducted schoolgirls before. I wonder, how do you get your head round these assaults on children in the classroom? I like to say that words are not innocent. I have a, a poster on my wall with this phrase and I like to read it quite often. It reminds me that the language we use to name things and events is important and that every word we use has a specific weight. I recently learned that Boko Haram can be translated as Western education is forbidden. Some words are unbearable. For example, rape, kidnapping, Others are rare, like normality. Now that we are in the middle of a pandemic, we have new words, for example, recovery. In a way, we can say that this word is necessary. It is like the lighthouse we look for when we are at sea in the middle of a storm. Recovery is a word that gives us hope. We want to get there. But how can a boy, a girl, a victim of the ongoing conflict in northeast Nigeria, how can they start the long road to recovery after being abducted? The attack occurred on a boarding school in north central Nigeria, where one student was killed, depriving children of the right to education. Worst of all, it's that, as Peter Hawkins said, it's not an isolated fact. It's normal, a way of life. There are words that are essential. Education is one of them. And by the way, Daniel, I also like the word traffic jam when it means there are buses full of children going to school. Me too, Solange. And I've asked Peter to send us a few pictures of those wonderful jams of school children in Mediguri for our UN Geneva Facebook page. Please take a look. Anyway, time's up, but we will be back next week for another UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva. Many thanks to guests Solange Beatege-Cortez for your thoughts and Alpha Diallo too, who I forced away from covering the Human Rights Council, so I'm sorry about that, Alpha. Let's not forget Justine Bryce either, who's in the wings about to publish this podcast online, so thanks to her and to you listeners wherever you are in this topsy-turvy world of ours. Thanks for taking an interest in the UN. I hope that you've enjoyed the show. Catch you next week. Bye-bye for now. Mm-hmm.